This is Professor August Howard. The following is a continuation of the series of statements and interviews from Daphne Howard, also known as the Diviner. No, really, I hate that code name. I can't imagine why. The designation is quite appropriate, given your inherent mystical abilities. Take pride in it, dear. I found it quite fascinating how you managed to get by for as long as you had before we captured you. For the statement, perhaps you could speak a bit about your time in the city? Spare me no details. <clears throat> Daphne? This city is a dark and dangerous thing. A hell deep within this miserable earth, doomed to burn forever. The streets are as lava flows, in which the damned will swim and swelter. Its skyscrapers are jagged obsidian monoliths, monuments to avarice and envy. And at the blackened heart of it all is a pawn shop, tucked into an abandoned alley. And who should enter, but none other than... More of this melodrama. I suppose this is better than the silent treatment. As I was saying... Who should enter, but none other than... Uh, Davies. Helen Davies. He hastily scrawled the name on a small pad of paper. Yeah, Davies? Like Marion Davies. Uh, no relation. Uh, well, welcome to Slate's Pond Palace. I'm Alex. This is what you're offering? Uh, yes, how much for them? He lifted my gold bangles to the light, letting it glint off the precious metal. Well, these sure as hell ain't costume jewelry, that's for damn sure. Not sure how you came by these in such tough times. Oh, don't worry about that. I'm in a rough spot, so I thought I'd see what I could get for them. I felt that telltale tremble start in my hand. I stealthily stuffed it in a pocket. He scratched at his chin, passing the slip of paper to me. Uh, this is what I can give you for both of them. Ugh, they have to be worth at least double that apiece, though. Well, these are an older style, and they're out of fashion, so they won't sell as well. They're likely going to be on consignment for a while. And the labor of dismantlement for metals and gemstones isn't worth what I'd get out of it after it's been all reset. So... Ugh, but you just whistled at them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a nice set of bangles. But they're just not going to sell the way that I need them to at the price that you think they're worth. I leaned up against the counter, eyes heavy-lidded, smiling slyly. You'd really leave a lady in the lurch like this, darling. You'd sure be doing me a favor by giving me just a little bit more. I saw him swallow hard at that. He pushed the pad of paper toward me with a pen. I, uh, I, I guess I can give you a little more. But, but that's all. Deal. I reached over to clumsily sign the paper with my left hand. It's much appreciated. I left the shop two bangles lighter with a few more dollars in my pocket, which was fortunate because I was in dire need of emergency cash. I tried to bring what I could with me from the house, but it was all such a blur. It was good to be extra prepared, extra liquid. Immediately after I fled the estate that fateful Monday evening, I drove back to my old family home. 
sat by the ocean to cry with no eyes on me, to try and process what had just happened, to try and make a plan. With one single telephone call, my life was violently upended, and I kept hearing those words in my head. He's going to kill you. He's going to kill you. It just made me sob even harder. Despite the lateness of the night, the view of the ocean was as beautiful as ever, backdropped against the serene quiet of the starry sky. But it wasn't enough to quell all the fear and sorrow in my heart. I didn't have it in me to drive into town after all of that. So I spent the night sleeping in the roadster, parked in the driveway of the abandoned, derelict Kilgallen Manor. Wrapped myself up in a blanket I'd fortunately packed, locked the car doors a few times, and tried to silence my broken heart long enough to drift off to sleep. Once day broke, I drove to the city. Finding myself here, walking down those gritty concrete sidewalks to work out the cramps in my legs from sleeping in a car all night. I'd never spent much extended time on this side of the city, so I was on high alert. I tilted my hat to obscure my eyes, kept my head down. I didn't want the possibility of being seen or recognized. It was bad enough that my attire that day was a little too rich. I was a walking target. As I strolled down the sidewalk, I kept my purse close. I avoided people passing. I had heard that people could get pickpocketed here. It'd be easy enough to lose the bit of cash I had flirted my way into, minus a few dollars I had stashed in my bra. But I supposed even that could be stolen too if I wasn't careful. I looked at the people that passed by me, and the people sitting against the buildings, all tired, haggard, a dark pall of depression cloaked each and every person there in the city. Everyone I saw was hurting, for money, from loss, or just plain hurt. Some limped around on obvious old war wounds, and crime was rampant here. I knew of several instances of gangs breaking the bones of people too nosy for their own good. A fate that would be all too easy for me to find myself in, should I talk to the wrong people in my search. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a man following me, clad in a nice suit, a hand casually resting within his coat. I felt his eyes on me ever since I left that pawn shop. I wasn't sure if he was gang-affiliated, or if he was one of yours, but I tried to keep my composure. I weaved through the people on the sidewalk, trying to lose him. In my haste, I caught sight of the spire rising above every other building in the area, and made my way there, opening the large, heavy doors and letting myself in. St. Joseph's was a pleasant respite from the terror of being followed. I eased myself into a pew and bowed my head, keeping an ear open for footsteps behind me. It had been a while since I'd prayed. You know I stopped attending Mass when my family died. And I stopped attending the friends' meetings after Lydia passed. I hadn't really been very religious, or even very good at it when I was. But I felt safe in that pew. Like the people I lost were there with me somehow. Father Flatterly came over to check on me, and I confided in him that I felt like I was being followed. He assured me that I would come to no harm while I was there. As I sat in the safety of the church, 
my mind couldn't help but wander to the days we prepared for our wedding. I'm sure you remember how much Lydia wanted us to have a big wedding, hoping it would be something special for me after so much went wrong in my life. And I remember, after she learned about how my parents were married, she was dead set on having it done in my family's faith. Quaker weddings weren't quite big enough for her aspirations. I didn't need anything so extravagant. It was enough for me that you and I were getting married. But the way Lydia lit up at the idea, it was important to her, so it was important to me. And I remember our conversation with the priest, how you insisted you were actually a practicing Catholic. He asked you where you worshipped in town and asked for proof. I thought you would fumble, that you wouldn't be able to pull off the lie. But you had everything laid out. You'd done your research so thoroughly. Every piece of information that you needed, you had. And you said it all so convincingly. I asked you about it after, and do you remember what you told me? I'm not going to let some antiquated, superstitious hogwash keep me from marrying the woman I love. I remember. I was more than fine with a civil ceremony, but a big event was more important to you and Lydia, so I made sure it happened. It really was a nice ceremony. It was. <sighs> anyway, once I felt safe enough to leave the church, I turned down the sidewalk. A block or two later, the five-cent store divested me of a couple dollars. I grabbed the essentials, the chemicals to bleach my hair, and enough cigarettes and chocolate bars to last a few days. I was on my way out when I realized I didn't buy any actual food, so I doubled back to grab a sandwich and something fizzy to drink. She felt the glass of water slip out of her hand. Oh, it's Jester. Hearing it shatter on the kitchen floor. Covered in blood, she said. Her voice full of worry as she reached out to him. Are you hurt? Her husband grinned, and that grin turned into a bestial snarl, akin to a rabid animal. His lips pulled back unnaturally, pearly white teeth stained with crimson, not of his own. Oh, I'm fine, my dear, he said, his brown eyes slowly turning into bright, sickly yellow as he took her hand. I've never felt better in my life. But do you know what would make me feel even better? What? His voice sank low as the beast emerged, sinking my fangs into your beating heart. He took a step towards his wife, the snap and crack of his bones and muscles rearranging under his skin echoed against the kitchen walls. Oh my god. Thick gouts of dark hair sprouted from every pore of his body as he let out a low growl. Oh god, she breathed out, taking cautious steps backward and yanking her arm away from his blood-slicked hand. Arthur, you're... you're a monster. I thought... I thought you loved me. Really, Chester? The hurt in her voice made the monster stop dead in his tracks gripping his head with his hands as he struggled with himself. Arthur, 
the real Arthur Reese. You couldn't have picked any other day to do this one. Easy. Please, run. Run before the monster. The scream morphed into a deafening howl. The monster had taken over. But Daisy ran. Daisy ran as fast as she could out of the house, thinking only to take the keys to the car with the beast who was once her husband hot on her heels. As she quickly shut the driver's door, he leapt into the side of the car, leaving him dazed and weakly clawing at the vehicle. And as she went down the street, leaving the monstrous form of the man she loved in the rearview mirror, she vowed she would come back to hunt that which hunted her. That's it. And that, dear listeners, ends The Howling, the first in a series of frightening tales from Daisy Gunter, Werewolf Hunter. I took the roadster down the street to the hotel I'd chosen, the Obelisk. Not a high-class establishment by any means, judging by the lights going out on its marquee and a few broken bulbs, but I figured my money would stretch longer in a cheaper place. I stepped inside and gave the woman at the front desk some sultry banter, a few compliments, and a wink or two. She didn't mind cutting me a deal in exchange. You should have seen the blush on that woman's face. It was adorable. Daphne. <laughs> anyway, I paid a discount for a week in a room one floor up and hold my suitcase up the stairs. The room itself was small. A single bed, a window, a desk and a chair, and a nightstand with a telephone sitting on it. Rather threadbare compared to the rooms I'd occupied in the manor, or in our home in the Dunwich Estates, or even nicer hotels we'd booked for trips together. But all I needed was a place to hang my hat, and a place to put together all the pieces I'd collected so far. I locked the door, making sure I was secure. For this investigation to work, I couldn't be recognizable. I had to be someone else. So I brought the chemical supplies I'd purchased to the powder room for the next step in my plan. Without hesitation, I took scissors to my hair and bobbed it. Then I painstakingly took the color out of my hair. As I walked back into the main room, I checked the locks again. One could never be too careful. Halfway to the bed, I looked down at my hand and the wedding ring that sat on my finger. I slipped it off, placing it on the long, thin silver chain I kept around my neck. Your ring joined the one Lydia had given me for a birthday long ago. Helen Davies can't be married. Especially not with a ring this expensive. A little while later, I sifted through the newspaper, sitting down on the bed. I kept my hat on. The chemicals were irritating, and having something there stopped me from itching at it too much. My Reuben sandwich was half-eaten, and I'd nervously gone through a few of my candy bars. A cigarette hung from my lips as I read the wanted ads. Hmm. Wouldn't be a good housekeeper. Secretary. No. Genographer, maybe. Ugh. Four years experience. Never mind. Chef wanted. No Irish made a pie. Well, screw you too, then. As I tapped the ash into a nearby tray, I squinted, seeing something of interest on the page. Waitress wanted. Inquire at the Scarlet Siren Club on 5th and Main. 
That's not too far from the university campus, actually. Wonder if anyone will have anything interesting to hear. I circled the listing and set the paper and my cigarette aside for the moment to take some notes. Where did you keep these notes? In the little notepad in your purse? Uh, yes, but I left my purse- In the roadster, yes. We searched the vehicle after you mentioned taking it, and I brought your purse in today. You collected quite a bit of information while playing the detective. It's... impressive, really. I had to find out as much as I could to try and get to the bottom of this. Sure. Ah, here's your notepad, dear. If you would, please summarize your notes for posterity. I had no idea where you were after I ran, but I did know a few things. The first is that you killed Mr. Skye. Right. You heard the gunshot over the phone. Oh, well. You knew that I hired Mr. Skye, and he said you were going to kill me. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You're too important for that. It's only proof that there's a fate worse than death. So dramatic. Go on. At the time, I didn't know for sure whether you were unfaithful to me. Blake said he saw you with a young woman with frizzy hair named Eleanor at Deacon. He also said you brought her to the Exim Arms, a hotel. She swears the two of you didn't have an affair. We didn't. Even if you don't believe anything else I say, I swear you can believe me on that. I suspect I know why. Elaborate. No. I remember seeing you and some strange men. Some looked as if they barely had any life in their eyes. I, I saw them hole a body into the yard. It was buried in my rose garden. It looked just like you. A side effect of the rites of Chagaram. It was yours? Yes. I suppose the small differences in your appearance make more sense now. The night you came back home, you were manic and crazy, and I wondered, was it grief? Did you have a secret ether addiction, or was it something else? It was almost like you were someone else for a moment. You grabbed my shoulders too hard, honestly, and looked just as confused and panicked as I was. It was... What? I don't know. I stopped writing there for a moment. I must have forgotten to continue the sentence. I think I put the notebook away for a bit. I felt overwhelmed. By what? Thinking back on that strange behavior of yours, it was almost as if you'd gone back in time and I... I saw someone I recognized. Just briefly. Ugh. I saw you snap out of it, afraid, but incredibly angry. Remember, I asked you what had happened. You snapped at me and told me it was none of my concern. It wasn't. That's not how a marriage works. Are you happy now that you've made it your concern? No, but apparently since I am too important to die, I would have been here at some point anyway. That was not the plan. Your paintings were easier to study whilst you were unaware of your ability, but having you close means I can better protect you. <laughs> protect me? From what? The only person I need protection from is you. Continue. Right, here's where I wrote my action plan. Step one, get hired at the Scarlet Siren, not far from Deacon, and being a waitress can't be too hard, can it? Step two, listen closely for any gossip related to Deacon and or August. There may be patrons that are affiliated with the university. Step three, find out what August is up to. I might be able to figure out where to go next based on what I hear. I see. I wondered why you found yourself in a bar. I figured alcohol often loosened lips, and if I was going to hear anything, it would be at a place where inhibitions were lowered, and it was socially acceptable to be in such a state. 
Based on the other notes you had taken later, it seemed like people had plenty to say, though they were wrong more often than they were right. Well, when people see a mysterious cult, you can't blame them when their imaginations fill in the gaps. <laughs> the Order is not a cult. Could have fooled me. Can I continue? Fine. I took a look out the window. The sun was finally going down, shrouding the city in darkness, and I was suddenly filled with a foreboding feeling. It was so overwhelming that I impulsively reached to the pocket of my coat, pulling out the small slip of paper that had been given to me a mere day before. My hand trembled wildly as I dialed the number. May I speak to Barnaby? This is he. Mrs. Howard. Yes, I, uh, I thought I'd call. Just to talk. Uh, are you in trouble? Should I call the police? Uh, where no, no, don't. Don't call anyone. I'm fine. I'm not. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. I just would like to chat with you. About anything. How are you? How's Melinda doing? I remember you telling me about that accident a few weeks ago. Yes, not everything has to be about you, August. Either way, that talk soothed my heart for a little while. But once I hung up, it hit me. I sat on a bed in an unfamiliar hotel in the heart of the city. It wasn't until then that I realized with perfect clarity that I was completely alone again. From that day until the day of my capture, it had been the longest I'd been alone since the death of my family. As much as I'd felt like I'd grown since then, that my unease of solitude and loneliness had at some point worn off, the widening pit in my stomach made it clear that that wasn't the case. I jumped off the bed, moving to the door to check the locks again, and I pulled the chair to the handle to blockade it. I switched off the lamp before moving to the window to close the blinds. I leaned against the wall, arms hugging myself, trying to reassure myself that I would be okay, willing myself to be strong. Can I... can I do this? I let the words hang a moment, considering them. If I don't, more people could get hurt. So it doesn't matter. I have to. I killed the cigarette in the tray before sitting at the edge of the bed, trying to calm myself down enough to get some sleep. Let me ask you one final question. What made you think you could stop me all on your own? I thought about what else I could do. 
if there was anywhere else I could go. I could have gone to Adeline. She was still inordinately wealthy. She had security. She had a whole hotel to lay low in if I needed to. I'm sure she wouldn't have minded me staying with her in her suite in the Le Mystère de l'Esprit until it was safe. But no. I couldn't embroil yet another person in this mess. I didn't want anyone else getting killed. And then I thought, I could just run. No one would know. The idea was appealing. I had my car, I had some clothing. I had enough money to get by. It would have been easy enough to take the highway north, find a small, sleepy coastal town, and make my living tuning pianos. Perhaps I could be happy there. Perhaps I could start over. I still had plenty of time. I'm not that old, after all. There was life left to live, if only I was willing to live it. But that's not you. You're too stubborn to run. Whenever I entertained those thoughts of running away, I felt a small sense of hope, but it also opened up a deep pit of dread in my stomach. Blake was dead. The only person that was on the case, the only person that truly knew the extent of what's going on, was gone, leaving you to run amok, unchecked. I couldn't allow that. Deep down, my heart craved answers. My mind itched at the chance to unravel all your threads. To untangle you from this mess of your own making. To try and make you live up to the promise you made Lydia, and me, to be a good man. And damn it all. You've wronged me, Blake, and countless others. But somewhere in that monstrous spirit of yours is my husband. Somewhere trapped in there is the man I love. I know that the man I care about has to be in there somewhere still. I know that now without a doubt. I've held him. I've seen him with my own eyes. I just don't see him in front of me now. Still pining over that mirage from the mundane array, I see. He is not your husband, he is not real, and he will never be real, Daphne, so please, stop dreaming about some remnant of what could have been, and be realistic. Regardless, I thought, perhaps it was up to me to clean up your mess. That perhaps that was what I was meant to do. To stop things from getting worse. And if I'd learned anything from Lydia, the woman I loved and admired so dearly, who took it upon herself to try and spare the suffering of people she didn't even know, an ocean away. I knew I couldn't leave this behind. I had to stay here in the city. Someone had to step up. Someone had to stop this. I knew, deep down, it had to be me. I couldn't let you keep doing this. To yourself, and to the world. I had to try and stop you, even if it was the last thing I'd ever do. It is easy to see the other reason we needed to apprehend the Diviner. Despite her soft upbringing, she has proven to be quite determined and resourceful when necessary. It is the hope of the Order that we can convince her to No! That we can convince her to work with us and not against us. Having her aid in deciphering the prophecies would reduce the amount of time needed to study them, and could potentially lead to a more expeditious progression to the completion of the opus. I would rather die than help you. 
You may not have a choice in the matter, dear.